0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcasts 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. In this podcast, our moderator, Jessica Bard of Consultant 360, is joined by two researchers who recently presented at CHESS 2021 on the use of direct oral anticoagulants for the treatment of venous thromboembolic disease and the duration of anticoagulation following pulmonary embolism. Well, thank you both for joining us on the podcast today. If you don't mind just introducing yourselves for the audience, Mary, why don't you go first? My name is Mary Luby. I'm a clinical pharmacy specialist at Inova Fairfax Medical Campus in Falls Church, Virginia, where I specialize in areas such as um, cardiovascular surgery and anticoagulation.
1: I'm a... Dr. Christopher King, I'm the Associate Medical Director of the Advanced Lung Disease and Lung Transplant Program at Inova Fairfax Hospital and a member of the Medical Critical Care Service as well.
0: Well, to get started here, can you all just give us an overview of your session and your research, please? In my session, we covered some more specific areas related to venous thromboembolic disease where the general recommendation of using direct oral anticoagulants may not apply or may have some nuances to be aware of. So in 20 minutes, I tried to cover five different areas where either DOACs as a class or specific DOACs should be considered either inferior or second line to standard of care options, such as warfarin or low molecular weight heparin.
1: And in my session, I talked about the, uh duration of anticoagulation following pulmonary embolism. I think it's a a fairly controversial area. You know, there's this sense that longer finite durations of anticoagulation might be superior, but really I think the question that people need to be asking when they're deciding on a duration of anticoagulation isn't, you know, is it six months or 12 months? It's more, is it, you know, three months, which seems to be the optimal time to treat through an active clot in comparison to more indefinite anticoagulation because the studies that have been done so far found that if you anticoagulate for a longer finite duration of time say six months or 12 months your risk of recurrent blood clots while you're on anticoagulation is reduced. But if you take patients off of anticoagulation and then follow them all out for say three years, they catch up uh, and they'll have this rebound where they get a lot of recurrent VTE. And so how do you decide who needs finite anticoagulation duration, like somebody with say a provoked risk factor, maybe they had surgery, and, uh, and so those patients are at low risk for recurrence, whereas patients that have a hereditary thrombophilia or an idiopathic event are at a relatively increased risk for recurrent events. And so in those patients, a lot of times we should be thinking more about indefinite anticoagulation as long as they don't have a prohibitive uh, bleeding risk.
0: What would you say are the key clinical takeaway messages?
1: I think for my session, it's that more and more we need to be looking uh, toward indefinite anticoagulation in in a fair number of patients. I think there's a common misconception also that patients with an idiopathic event have a lower, say you have an idiopathic unprovoked event, that they have a lower risk of recurrence than patients that have an something like factor five Leiden and that's really not the case and so they shouldn't really be thinking about those patients any differently you know really you have to look at The way that I break it down in the talk is three different factors. The situation in which the clot occurred, factors about the clot, and then factors about the patient, and all those things together will kind of inform your decision and it has to be more of a personalized decision that incorporates risk of recurrence, risk of bleeding, and then kind of patient preferences and values to come up with an individual plan for each patient.
0: It is largely dependent on which of the five different areas we're talking about. Antiphospholipid syndrome, really the data we have only shows an increased risk of thrombotic events with the few DOACs that have been studied, Um, so avoiding them there. Cancer-associated thrombosis, we have some really well-designed trials now to say that oral 10A inhibitors, so again, not all DOACs can be used, but oral 10A inhibitors are safe and effective in cancer-associated thrombosis. End-stage renal disease, again, dependent on which DOAC we're talking about, and the data is still not perfectly clear. I think we need um, additional well-designed trials that are gonna answer this, but we do have some indicators that there may be a safety benefit with um, Apixaban and end-stage renal disease. Cirrhosis is another area that we talked about where we really have minimal well, no controlled trials, I should say, and minimal retrospective data. Um, so nothing that we can confidently recommend use of doax in severe cirrhosis. And lastly, obesity is the final area that we talked about, where that is an area where we actually have gained some traction and have much larger studies to indicate that again specific doax apixaban and rivaroxaban are safer options and than, than um, and also reduce recurrent vte what's next for research on these topics
1: you know the development of doax is a relatively recent phenomenon and i think uh, with any anticoagulation research you're uh, you're trying to develop something that's going to be effective in in reducing the risk of clotting uh, or recurrent events while minimizing the risk for bleeding and so I think further study on those specialized populations like Mary's session talked about I think will help inform our decisions because the the large randomized clinical trials that led to approval of these agents restricted entry uh, for a lot of those conditions and so now they can circle back now that there's approval and we can we can start to hone in on these special populations i think the other lesson that i would say is that not all doax are created equal. Um, I think you can individualize the qualities of the DOACs to, to particular patients. So for instance, rivaroxaban is once a day. So if you have a patient that's not going to be able to take a twice a day medication, then that might be a superior choice. Apixaban is much less reliant on renal clearance. So in patients that have impaired renal clearance, then that might be a superior choice. And so I think over time, we'll figure those things out. And I think, I think the future is development of anticoagulants, like factor 13 inhibitors, where you may be able to really minimize the risk of bleeding because of an alternative mechanism. Uh, but I think that that's probably more in the distant future uh, than uh, in the next few years. How
0: about you, Dr. Ruby? What would you say? I agree. I mean, Dr. King summarized a lot for the patient populations that I, that I reviewed and even what I presented, a lot of the data is just not satisfactory to have firm conclusions for these patients. So honing in, having some larger, well-designed randomized trials, which really, there shouldn't be reasons we can't. There are plenty of patients with end-stage renal disease, for example, who require DOEX. And so, you know, there have been randomized trials that have been terminated early due to funding and other causes, but trying to revamp those and and get the answers that we need so that we um, can assure that we're using the safest option in these patients. Warfarin just has so many limitations, and whether it's difficulty monitoring in antiphospholipid patients or just controlling the INR in end stage renal disease patients or obese patients. Um, So, anytime we may not find an efficacy advantage, but if we can find a safety advantage, which is really what our initial VTE trials showed, then we will be doing something for the benefit of our patients.
1: I think we'll maybe start to be able to apply use of DOACs to novel patient populations as well. I know uh, Dr. Luby is an investigator on an upcoming clinical trial looking at DOACs in patients with LVADs, which is something that has not been uh, been looked at before. And you know those patients really struggle with both clotting and bleeding issues. And so if we can reduce their risk of bleeding and still provide adequate anticoagulation that minimizes their risk for device thrombosis and, and stroke and things like that that would be a a huge advancement
0: absolutely and i think there's so many areas i didn't touch on in this talk just because i was trying to limit it to venous disease but mechanical valves that there are ongoing studies with oral 10a inhibitors with mechanical valves as dr king mentioned uh, mechanical circulatory support we're working on that ourselves so in the cardiac field there's also a lot more to come and a lot more we need to figure out is there anything else that you all would like to add before we close here I think I said those exact words in my talk. Um, not all DOACS are created equal, so I, I think that would be an important message to take home. Is you know, I know a lot of times there are insurer difficulties where insurers have
1: preferences,
0: but I would caution providers to not fall into the path of least resistance if there really is a preferred agent for patients.
1: Yeah, I think that's the thing you need to be thoughtful anytime you're starting an anticoagulant you want to be thoughtful about are there ways I can minimize the patient's risk for bleeding am I picking the right agent how long is the patient going to be on this do they need to be on it indefinitely and so kind of working through all those things and having a plan when you're starting anticoagulation I think is really important and then over time I think you need to go back and revisit the risks and benefits of anticoagulation as well
0: Well, Dr. Luby and Dr. King, thank you both so much for your time. We really appreciate it.